Section 22 of Roman History, the Early Empire by William Wolfe Capes. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 13, The Rights of Roman Citizenship. The vast multitudes gathered within the walls of Rome were a motley assemblage of every class and race. War, proscription, and imperial jealousy had thinned the numbers of the old families of pure descent, and many of the great historic names had already disappeared. But early under the Republic, complaints were made by the Italians that the attractions of the capital were draining the country towns of their inhabitants, and for centuries there had been a steady influx of provincials of every race, while the slaves of the wealthy households, gaining frequently their freedom, after a few years of bondage, passed into the class of Libertini and left children to recruit every order of the state. There were still differences of legal status left between the children of the full citizens and of the freed slave, but the lines that parted them became gradually fainter. But in what did the status of the Roman citizen consist, and how far did the empire modify the rights and privileges of the franchise? Of the civil law, we need not speak. The rights of family life and property were specially determined by the old jus privatum, and only slowly changed by an admixture of equity from the praetor's edicts and by an infusion of the wider spirit of Greek philosophy. The political privileges of citizenship were more directly modified. 1. Of these, the earliest and most distinctive, the jus suffragi, the right of voting in the popular assemblies became an idle form and passed away. After a few years the comitia ceased to meet to pass laws or elect magistrates, for no representative system had been devised to collect the votes of millions scattered over the municipia of the whole empire, and no statesman could regret the loss of the turbulent meetings of the Roman rabble which had disgraced the last century of the Republic. Two the jus honorum, or right to hold official rank, was still real and valued. It had not been an integral part of the Roman franchise in the earliest days of the distinction between the patres and the plebs. It did not always go with it in later times, for we read in Tacitus the speech of Claudius in the Senate when some of the nobles of Gallia Comata pleaded for the right of office. 3. The right of appeal to the popular assembly or provocatio ad populum, in capital trials, was a highly prized defense against the magistrate's caprice, secured by the Valerian law, enlarged by the veto of the tribunes, and reinforced by the Sempronian law of Gaius Gracchus. But the emperor now stepped into the place of both tribune and comitia. He was the high court of appeal, and from him there was no flight. 4. The security from personal outrage or bodily chastisement which the portion laws provided had emphasized the difference of dignity between the Roman and the Latin, and continued in imperial days to be the constitutional right of every citizen, of Paul of Tarsus as of the inhabitants of Rome. 5. The power of voluntary exile, use exili, of leaving Rome before trial in the law courts or the comitia to live in some allied community, became meaningless from this time. The emperor's hand could reach as well to Rhodes or to Massilia 
as to Tibor or Orisha, and the exiles of whom we read henceforth had been banished to inhospitable rocks for the most part by the sentence of the senate or the courts, or sometimes by a message from the palace. 6. Freedom of speech and writing had been left large, but not unrestricted by the commonwealth. Scurrilous lampoons had been made penal by the twelve tables, and the jealousy of an oligarch dealt harshly now and then with petulant criticism. But orators in the forum and the law courts used the utmost license of invective. Augustus was careful at first to do little to abridge such freedom, and to let men find in talk the safety valve of passionate feeling, but when his temper grew soured with age, and the empire seemed more firmly planted, he became more jealous of his dignity, and the formidable laws of treason were extended to cover words as well as acts. Spies and informers started up to report unwary utterances and garble social gossip. The praises of a Cato or a Brutus might cost the historian his life. An epigram against a favorite be avenged by his imperial master, and Lucan be driven to conspire, when his verses had given umbrage to the tyrant. There was as yet no censorship of the press, no means of seizing some thousand copies of a journal before it had appeared for sale, no way of warping or poisoning the public mind by official lies and comments. Yet such freedom as was left lived by sufferance only, and despotism needed only more spies and agents, and a more centralized machinery to be terribly oppressive. 7. Religious liberty was little meddled with as yet. Polytheism is naturally a tolerant and elastic creed, and a niche might be found for almost any deity in the pantheon of the Roman ruler. Atheism itself was safe, for the state religion was a matter of forms and observances rather than of thought. If jealousy was shown toward any creed or worship by the statesman, it was towards such as were exclusive and aggressive, like the Jewish and the Christian leading, as they seemed to do, to turbulence and disrespect for established powers, or towards such as were linked with sacerdotal claims, like that of the Druids, which might foster national memories and come between the masses and the Roman rulers, or towards such as seemed of too extravagant and mystical a type, outraging sober reason or acting as hotbeds of secret societies and clubs. 8. Right of Assembly The right of meeting was largely used under the Republic. The contiones, or mass meetings of the streets, were addressed by every great party leader in his turn, and no government had tried to put them down, except when they met by night in secret or led to open riotings. More permanent unions, called partnerships, clubs, guilds, and colleges were freely formed, and most of these were recognized by law and only interfered with when, at the end of the Republic, their machinery was thought to be abused by political wire-pullers and electioneering agents. Warned by such experience, the earlier Caesars looked at such clubs with a watchful and suspicious eye, put down the newly formed and barely tolerated the older. They feared, it seems, centers of attraction for the discontented, and secret societies that might meet under cover of a harmless name. But before long, the restrictions were relaxed. Inscriptions show that vast numbers of such unions existed all over the Roman Empire, claiming on their face a legal sanction, connected with every variety of trade and interest, 
and recruited mainly from the lowest ranks, often like the provident clubs of later times, with occasional meetings for good cheer. Formal history is almost silent on their humble interests, but the monumental evidence is full and clear. 9. The citizens of Rome claimed and enjoyed one further privilege which the franchise did not elsewhere carry with it. This was the right to food. From early ages the government had bought up large quantities of corn to distribute freely or below cost price, or had fixed a maximum of price in harder times. Gaius Gracchus was the first to systematize the practice, and let every household have its monthly allowance from the state at a sum far below its value. This was to be the Roman salary for the trouble of governing the world. The step could never be retraced, though Sulla tried in vain to do so. The price was even lowered, and the corn was at last freely given. The first emperors saw the dangerous effects of this, the discouragement to honest industry, the temptation to the idle and improvident to flock to Rome, the burden on the treasury of the state. But they dared not give it up, lest the malcontents should find a rival and a rallying cry. So they were content to scrutinize the claims and reduce the number to the narrowest limits, and to confine it to the poor of the inhabitants of Rome. It was in this seemingly unlike our poor law system that it did not, at first at least, imply as a matter of course the extremest poverty, for a noble Piso came, we read, to take his dole, saying that if the state was so reckless with its money, he would have his share with the rest. It was, unlike the French socialists' right to labor, urged of late years with so much vehemence, for it set a premium on vicious indolence and made the Romans the pensioners of the world. End of section 22